Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. When a federal judge with a lifetime appointment stops playing nice with other judges and won't fully participate in the work of the court, what can be done? In a recent dispute, an Ohio federal judge was asked to submit to a mental health evaluation, and he wasn't happy about it. A little later in the show, our senior legal ethics reporter, Andrew Strickler, comes by to discuss the lawsuit that the judge filed and how it may test how far court authorities can go to control judges. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about how a court down in Whoville liked a fair use doctrine a lot and thought that the Dr. Seuss estate had a heart that was two sizes too small. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hey, guys. <laughs> it feels off to start with the Alex <laughs> should impersonation. I a, should I do a Jody impression? Oh, could you? Yeah. Well, she just did mine last week, so I can't. Yeah, I, can't really I don't do have it. a tagline yet. This hello, one... hello. <sighs> oh, man, that's a, that's Bill Donahue doing Jody Godoy. So, yeah, no, sure. and I've got no tagline now. I'm, well, I am merely here. I will here. say, welcome to you again, Jody. Thanks for filling in yeah. for a second time. There were some big boat shoes to fill. Alex and I had jury duty on sequential weeks. That's uh, that's the story. That's I, why. Yeah. I thought you were down in uh, Wisconsin fending off a lawsuit from a TV station. <laughs> yeah, you went this time, and your uh, partner in crime, Steel, is down yeah, there yeah, yeah. handling was it. Was that Chop? Um, that's what I decided in this moment. Or what was it? <laughs> yeah, it's Chop and Steel. Chop and Steel. That's it. Yeah. Got it. So, what does everybody have going on? Welcome back. Well, what do you What do you have going on? It's been a busy day. <sighs> busy day on the patent beat. Do I just look really tired, everybody? Pooped. So here's what happened uh, today. We talked on the podcast several weeks ago about Judge Rodney Gilstrap down in Texas, who's like the king of the patent docket. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he has a quarter of all patent cases. Right. And he had basically come up with this test to try to keep as much venue as he, he could. Because there was a Supreme Court things. case that would have that would have like taken away cases from his district. Yeah. yeah. So he wasn't the, having it. the Federal Circuit weighed in on that today, though. And they basically said... Too bad, Rodney Gilstrap. <laughs> nah. Yeah. So we've been really busy in the beat. We're going to have some, Ryan Davis is going to have some good stories on it, but that's a big development in patent world. It is. And I've got some more patent news, some other patent stuff. So it's just going to be, it's going to be an all patent show, guys. <laughs> all patents uh, all which, the time. I mean, Good I thing I got my patent leather yeah. <laughs> shoes on. <laughs> nice. I, nice. I can't get enough of patent stories, but nice. this one is actually really interesting. What do you want to talk about? Bill? Super weird. So pharma giant Allergan has been making waves in the, the the patent world by using a sort of creative legal maneuver that involves uh, involves a Native American tribe to shield the patents that protect its drugs from this new process that's being used to invalidate patents that's been dubbed the, you know, patent death squad. Which is such a catchy, I mean, whenever you say oh, yeah. death squad, people are like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. So can you just explain that a little more? Sure. So it's the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. It's this institution that was created five years ago as a means to sort of weed out bad patents, to get rid of patents that maybe shouldn't have been issued by the patent office in the first place. It's done pretty well. Um, some argue too well. It's done. It's it's gotten rid of thousands of patents. It's created this sort of fast track process to, if you're sued or if you th- if you you know think that a patent is invalid, you can go through this process and get it wiped off the books. So to kind of cut down on the whole patent troll thing, right? That's precisely the idea. That was why it was created. So you know, big tech companies, people who are sued by the aforementioned T word, uh, they love this thing. It's awesome for them because they can go and get rid of all these patents. Pharma hates it, though, don't Pharma they? Pharma companies, on the other hand, truly, truly hate it because, you know, the lifeblood of the, of the, the you know, name brand pharma companies is the fact that they have a 20-year window where they have this exclusive right to this drug and they sell a billion dollars of it a year. 
So they hate it. Um, it's allowing uh, generic companies to more easily invalidate their drugs, sell cheaper versions, and they're pushing Congress to change it. So that's one of the big hot button issues in sort of patent policy right now. Okay, so that's a good setup, and they absolutely hate this. Yeah. What did the smart people in these pharma companies figure out? So Allergan thinks it has a nice little loophole to get around PTAB. That's the, uh, the, the patent trial and appeal board. Earlier this month, the drug maker transferred ownership of the patents covering its dry eye medicine, Restasis, um, from which the company made $1.5 billion last year. So yeah, it's we've not all like... seen like the commercials on TV. It's a really... Yeah, with a B. Yeah. Um, to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, which will then, the way the deal works is they'll then exclusively license it back to, um, to Allergan for, I think it was... Uh, it was like 15, they're paying them like $15 million and then an ongoing royalty to essentially, you know, hold on to this patent and license it back to to the company. So why exactly does that help Allergan? Because, so, the St. Regis tribe is a sovereign entity. Um, and that, according to what Allergan argues, means that this PTAB process does not apply to them. So it gets them, it basically means that a, a patent held by this tribe cannot be challenged in this buzzsaw that they hate so much. So can they actually do that? It's very unclear at this point. It's it's something that everybody's going to be watching for the next few months. But the you know the way that this whole thing started was that the University of Florida owned a patent uh, and it was brought before the PTAB and they ruled that they couldn't invalidate it because it was owned by a sovereign entity so the by the state of Florida. The so that was Florida sort of, found this one weird trick. Yeah, basically, and that was what that was sort of the spark that that led to this situation. That someone said, "Let's try that with a with a Native American tribe." Okay, so let's assume that Allergan's going to win, and mm -hmm. that this is a thing that they can do. Um, what happens next? Well, if they win, I mean, it's the Restasis is clearly going to be the tip of the iceberg for Allergan, and Allergan is going to be the tip of the iceberg for a bunch of other drug companies that all want to shield their, you know, their extremely lucrative drug patents from this process of getting rid of patents. And and there's this whole other Matt wrote a really Matt Boltman, our patent reporter, wrote a really good story looking at um, there's this other process, the Hatch Waxman process, whereby generic drug companies can sue a name brand saying, we think we can make a generic earlier than you say we can. And that's sort of the underlying, it's, it's this really important process and that all could be undone by this sort of maneuvering as well, um, according to some of the experts that Matt spoke to. So it's a big deal. It, it you know, over the aggregate, that's a lot of different drugs that that aren't moving toward generic at, as quickly as they would otherwise, that raises drug prices, it, you know, it cuts down. So it's a it's a big deal. Well, it's good to have a big new one on our radar, but I think we also today want to turn back a little bit and turn it over to Jody to talk about something we've followed for a long do time. Do we want to do that? I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> so if nobody's getting those jokes, we want to talk about the Dewey case again, which we've also talked about a bit on the podcast. Right. So just to kind of back it up and talk about, you know, why we're still talking about this, um, if anyone, you know, listening to this hasn't heard. I think you, most people have, but um, Dewey and LaBeouf was a huge mega firm that collapsed in 2012. Subsequently, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office accused some of its top executives of cooking the books to make it look like the firm was doing better than it was. And that trial happened twice. It mm -hmm. happened in 2015, and then it happened again. The retrial happened in 2015. 2015 ended in a mistrial, right? The first one ended yeah. in a mistrial, right. correct? And then this past May, there were two folks on trial. One was the CFO, Joel Sanders, and the other was the firm's executive director, Stephen DeCarmine. What was the verdict? 
The verdict was Sanders was guilty on some fraud counts and conspiracy, and mm-hmm. um, DeCarmine was acquitted. So that brings us up to now. Mm-hmm. And Sanders is about to be sentenced in a couple of weeks. So Sanders, I'm sure, has some thoughts about how he should be sentenced and what that should be. Right. He has some thoughts. I mean, his lawyer, Andy Frisch, who's been with this case for years now, has, has some thoughts. I wonder if the thoughts. judge has any thoughts. Right. So this is the <laughs> well, thing. Well, that's is the part it, we're waiting We, we on. know yeah. exactly what the prosecutors think and what the defense thinks. Mm-hmm. We've all heard it so many times. The judge has heard it so many times. Now we're going to get to hear what does the judge say at the end of the day. And that's mm-hmm. where things get interesting because it's kind of, you've kind of got a Rashomon effect here. You have prosecutors saying, you know, the actions that he took sort of deprived the firm of its ability to dig itself back out of the hole. And that's something that prosecutors were not allowed to argue at trial. They weren't allowed to get into the cause of the downfall of Dewey, at least not in the second trial. Then on the other hand, you have his defense lawyer arguing that, you know, what he did, he did for the good of the colony and to try to save the firm and help all these thousands of families who are relying on this big law income. So it sounds like We've got two competing narratives there. Are there any Dewey alumni that are have thoughts about what the real answer is? <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> There's mixed feelings out there among the alumni of Dewey, but some folks do feel very strongly that Sanders um, was sort of, you know, scapegoated here. And a couple of them wrote letters to the judge backing Sanders' bid for no prison. Uh, one of them, a guy named Tom Moore at Mayor Brown, said that, um, you know, he thinks that many, if not most, actions by CFOs at distressed companies could be found to be equally criminal if they were looked at under such a microscopic lens, <laughs> to which prosecutors came back and said, if that's true, then, quote, general deterrence is desperately needed. <laughs> so he's, you know, at the end of the day, Sanders is facing an indeterminate sentence. That's how that works in New York State of one and a third to four years, and his lawyer's asking for a non-custodial sentence, you know, perhaps community service or something like that where he doesn't go to jail. All right. So we've been talking about Dewey. We've been doing Dewey at Law 360 for a really long time. Yep. Are we done when this when this settlement happens uh, or when this, when this sentence happens? Like, uh, are we done or is there more? Well, you know, uh, you know how justice works, Bill. Do I? <laughs> I, 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 t- I tend to evade it. <laughs> so there, there's other folks that need to get sentenced still. There are uh, people who worked at Dewey and who cooperated with the prosecutor's case. Mm-hmm. One of them just got a sentence to uh, doing community service at a, a dog shelter in Long Island, and wow. she's already done that. It's a um, rough sentence. Yeah, there's, there's another couple. Yeah, they mean she shook, she shook hands with people when she left. She was clearly happy to be done. And then, of course, there's the appeal where Sanders is going to argue that trying him the second time was double jeopardy. Okay. And then we had DeCarmine, who was acquitted in all of this. So presumably he's done. Yeah, he's. I mean, I think that he would like to think so, um, but he's got one last thing, and it's a case by the Securities and Exchange Commission. His lawyer in that case is working on settling it. The lawyer thinks that because he was acquitted, you know, that's going to change the game. The judge and the SEC lawyers, mm, it's uh, not clear that they think so yet. So so the answer, Bill, is nope. Nope. We are Sorry, not done. we're not done talking about it. Good. All right. Good. Well, follow Law360. I'm sure Jody and others will have a lot more stories about this. Thanks, Jody. Thanks. judges are appointed for life. Short of impeachment, what do you do when their conduct becomes a problem? That's the question one case is putting front and center. 
an Ohio federal judge who has long feuded with his colleagues was reprimanded after he refused to submit to a mental health evaluation. Now he's sued court officials for what he says is an abuse of their statutory authority, teeing up a rare constitutional test of judicial oversight. Here to talk with us about the case is Andrew Strickler, senior legal ethics reporter at Law360 and a repeat guest. Welcome back, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So right up top, I said this was a case brought by a federal judge and that he was being pushed to have a mental health evaluation. Can you just sort of tell us who he is and what led to the court asking for him to do that? So John Adams is a Ohio native. He went to law school in Ohio. He was in private practice. He was a county prosecutor. He was appointed to the federal bench in 2003 by President George W. Bush. So far, this all checks out. This sounds like your typical (laughs) judge. Pretty standard. Pretty standard. Unextraordinary history. Uh, The really extraordinary thing happened just earlier this year in this 2017 report from the Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability in which they were answering this petition from the from Judge Adams and laying out a very, very long history of problems going back many years in his tenure on the bench. The gist of the report was focusing on a order that Judge Adams issued in 2013, essentially accusing some of his uh, magistrate judges, his mm-hmm. colleagues in this very small, basically, federal courthouse in, in Akron, Ohio, with contempt, threatening them with contempt for missing some court schedules. And that drew a complaint from the judges. Of and course it did. The, I'm sure they were really upset. It was an unpopular thing to do. And the circuit, as it will, uh, started a appointed a committee who started interviewing people in the courthouse. And all of these stories started coming out yeah. about problems with Judge Adams or their perceived problems with Judge Adams going back many, many years prior. Mm-hmm. Some very, very strange uh, stories about um, hostility toward other judges. There's a strange anecdote about him basically colliding with another judge while they were running on a path in the courthouse and him running away without saying he was sorry. Another issue in which he uh, found an intern had parked in his parking spot. He blocked the intern's car in and refused to move it, which started some kind of back and forth with the security guards in the parking lot. Can you imagine if you just landed in this guy's in this guy's courtroom. Uh, it sounds terrible. I mean, <laughs> well, this is the interesting thing is that a lot of what they're hearing about are problems essentially about him being hostile and pulling back from uh, committees and refusing to deal with his other judges, with his fellow judges and with uh, other staffers in the courthouse. Not so much about his dealings with litigants and handling right. of cases. Your typical right. everyday accusation against a judge is usually that they're not fair to defendants or something like that. Right. And so in the course of this, that's right. And so in the course of this investigation, the chief judge takes it upon himself to hire a forensic psychologist, Mm -hmm. basically saying, we think there's enough evidence here to think we need to check out his mental health. They asked the judge. He didn't love judge, that. No, he didn't. <laughs> judge Adams, like, sound, it doesn't sound like a guy who would be just down for it. If he's blocking yeah. interns when yeah. they park in the wrong parking spot, I'm sure he was real calm about this development. He's like, I'll well, tell you what I see in the inkblot. <laughs> it's quite an extraordinary uh, request, obviously. And Judge Adams, uh, he refused. Politely, Politely, I'm yeah. sure. And, uh, and he also argued, uh, I, I think, very stringently that uh, the 
the issue with the contempt order was really about the court complaining about him being upset about the way the court was being administered, yeah. about judges who weren't carrying their caseloads and that kind of thing. But it was substantive. It was, it was, that it was right. substantive. Right. Uh, and he certainly denies that he has any mental health issues and even offered his own mental health expert. Oh. So he refused. What did they do? Well, they found him in, to have committed misconduct mm-hmm. in terms of the contempt order and in his refusal to take the mental health exam. He petitioned to the Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability, which is the D.C. The, the big guys oversight, in D.C. The right, big right. guys in D.C. That committee in this 27 report backed the finding of misconduct for both issues. They ruled kind of in favor of Judge Adams in terms of the uh, circuit's decision to refused to assign him new cases for two years as a punishment, which is also quite extraordinary. You think about a judge who's saying, well, I'm being punished for complaining about other judges not doing their work fast enough. And this was in this was the August ruling. This, this um, the August ruling yeah. was looking back on the findings by the judicial council in his circuit, yeah. and basically backing those findings of misconduct, right. and including ruling that the circuit did have the authority under a very broadly written statute mm-hmm. or a very broadly uh, seen authority to order him to undergo a mental health evaluation. Right. Judge Adams then turns around. And sues, this is what happened last week. That was like this week, week, right, yeah. Last week, he went to the federal court in D.C. and he filed a lawsuit challenging the federal judiciary's authority to punish him and certainly challenging their authority to order him to take a mental health exam. So tell us, your your article you read about this was really interesting because it sort of set up the stakes of what this lawsuit can mean. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, Judge Adams has put his finger on a weakness of the statutory framework for judicial discipline and authority that has been recognized before. Essentially, the statute describes the process for bringing complaints against judges, federal mm-hmm. judges, for investigating them, for uh, for recommending uh, an impeachment in Congress, etc. What it doesn't do is give any explicit way for the federal judiciary to discipline or control judges who do things short of an impeachable offense. Just doesn't tell a you what son to of a do. bitch. Just, <laughs> yeah, right. he just doesn't give you much guidelines. And this is pretty important, too, because we're in a climate now where judges are appointed fairly young. They're lifetime appointments for most of these judges we're talking about. So over the course of the many years they could be on the bench, you can see how there may be a lot of judges that end up in this gray area where there's maybe problems with their performance, but nothing that they could be impeached over. Absolutely. And it also brings up a question about uh, sort of political interference with particular judges. Mm-hmm. Ju- uh, these Article Three judges have a lifetime appointment for a reason. They're supposed to be sort of independent of the political uh, sort of winds of the day and to a great degree are expected to be uh, independent thinkers, even within the judiciary. You know, you, you come to your own conclusions, you do the things that you think are right. There are people who believe that if you do open up a disciplinary sort of framework, a middle ground framework for judges, it will be used for political purposes. It will be used to go after judges who issue unpopular opinions. Mm-hmm. In Judge Adams' case, you have a situation in which you have a judge who very well may have some problems dealing with his colleagues and administering the court and basically getting along with people. 
but a case that also gets at an important question for the courts about what to do with judges who simply cannot work well with others, who cause problems in their courts, but don't do things that actually rise to the level of impeachment. So where does that leave us in the next steps with this case that we're watching? Well, we're looking forward to seeing a response, obviously, from the court. We'll be covering that. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see how these questions develop in the case about these very uh, important questions, again, of where are the lines, the statutory lines, the authority lines for the courts to uh, basically force uh, cantankerous recalcitrant yeah. judges uh, to comply with uh, what the courts want. It's a difficult question, and it really gets to uh, questions about the inherent authorities of individual judges versus the judiciary more broadly, yeah. about judicial independence. Uh, and it's going to raise interesting questions about Judge Adams himself, of course. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that, Andrew. We're going to look forward to reading all the future stories you do on this one, because I know this is far from over. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Bill, I know you have a Dr. Seuss one that I teed up in a very cheesy way at the top of the episode. (laughs) What do you have for us today? Offbeat and off-Broadway. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's true. So a little bit off-color. Yes, yes. Great. This Sounds is great. We, we could keep We're doing keeping this Jody. We're keeping Jody. <laughs> Alex is not welcome back. <laughs> Who? Uh, nice. God. Uh, so, before we get derailed completely, uh, a federal judge tossed out a lawsuit this week that was filed by the estate of Dr. Seuss over a uh, sort of bawdy off-Broadway play that riffed on um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, saying that it was, it was, it was parody, that it was fair use, um, that it was legal under the law and not copyright infringement. So how did we get here? What was the key argument between the parties? There was this play, Whose Holiday, that was this like profanity-laden, adult-themed story about a grown-up version of Cindy Lou Who. So obviously from... a thing we all would have rushed out to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was a one-woman play, and it took oh, place... Oh, one-woman play. It took place a okay. year... It was just her. Great. In a trailer. Uh, and it took place <laughs> years after her fateful childhood encounter with the Grinch. Oh, and man. it sort of recounted... Like they hook up later and like it's all these weird it's it's so stuff gets real. The more you talk about it, the more I'm like, it's really clear why the Dr. Seuss estate was like this Didn't love is it. no. Did no. not love it one bit. Um so the estate said that it was a sort of unauthorized sequel. That it wasn't <laughs> you know, that it was like you are making this story years down the road and clearly right. sequels are covered nice. by copyright law. You're not allowed to make uh, the Empire Strikes Back off How of the Star Grinch Wars. Stole my heart. Right. So the author, Matthew Lombardo, is the guy's name, uh, argued that it was instead a parody, which is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I cover copyrights. So it's sort of a, it's base rock sort of rule that parody is protected. It's sort of First Amendment concerns. Right. Otherwise Weird Al would have nothing. You're allowed to use a previous work to criticize it and all sorts of other things. So he argued that he was mocking the naivete of of the Seuss world, of the sort of the Seuss worldview with his play. He was taking all these elements but making them super dark and and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was his argument. 
So what happens now? So it was on Friday. Uh, this ruling came down. The judge very, very definitively sided with, with Lombardo, ruling that the play turns, quote, Susian staples upside down and makes their saccharine qualities objects of ridicule. Which sounds a lot like parody. So um, there you go. Yeah. So the judge basically said, you know, the play's coarseness and vulgarity lampoons the Grinch by by highlighting the ridiculousness of the utopian society that was in the book, you know. And those hairdos. And the hairdos, the uh, yeah, that's 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 the main so point of the, uh, of the playwright. <laughs> um, but he just said that, like you know, society is is not good and sweet, but coarse, vulgar, and disappointing, and that you know that the wow. play was, was ripping that's on that. Depressing, it is. So the judge said, "You cannot sue him in my court. You cannot sue him. You don't have a tort." <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> uh, again, I don't think we need Alex back. Uh, <laughs> no, he's good. Um, so I thought an interesting thing to bring up here was that, uh, you know, in a big thing in fair use cases is that you have to show that one of the things you consider is whether or not the thing that you're making will replace the other thing. Will it, it like hurt my ability to sell my original book? Well, if you make holiday your... just actually be a real yeah. sequel to the Grinch, yeah, which sounds preposterous when you say it out loud, which is why this guy won. But so the, you have to like come up with arguments there. Right. And so. The Seuss folks argued that, you know, we don't make plays like this that, that would be harmed by, mm-hmm. by this, but we would consider potentially licensing RIP to do something like uh. this. So the judge said basically that that is completely ridiculous, saying that, like, there was nothing in the case that, that indicated to him that, quote, the estate intends to authorize a parody containing references to bestiality, drug use, and other distinctly unsusian topics. So basically, they had plenty of time to do a bad Grinch. Yeah, they could have done. They could have done their bestiality play, and they uh, they chose not to. So you know, you slept on it. So uh, does everybody want to see this play? Yeah, yeah, let's go. I mean, uh, winter is coming, so uh, maybe they'll put it back on. Yeah, it sounds like a great one to bring the family to. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a podcast field trip is what it sounds like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for being with me today, Bill. Thanks. And Jody. Thank you. We have a lot of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Andrew Strickler. Contributing reporters this week include Matt Boltman, Andrew Wesney, Kat Green, Pete Brush, and Rachel Graff. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week. Amber McKinney, the host of Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm here to give you a preview of a special episode we have coming up that's going to cover what you need to know about the upcoming Supreme Court term. Before the October 2nd kickoff, stay tuned because we'll release an episode where we had a long discussion with Ian Gershengorn, who's the former acting Solicitor General and Chair of General Block's appellate and Supreme Court practice. Here's a little taste of our discussion with Ian and why he thinks this might be a blockbuster term. It's in part because of the subject matter of the cases and in part because who's deciding that cases. And by that, I mean that there are going to be nine justices. The court will be back at full strength, as everybody knows. 
And I think operating with eight justices has really affected the way the court approached its job in the time since Justice Scalia passed away in in February 2016. Our full conversation with Ian will be available on September 29th, just before the Supreme Court term starts. You can find the episode on law360.com slash podcast or on iTunes by searching for Law 360. 